0: Voyager, Season 3. And I love Voyager. Enjoyable. It's remarkable. Lindsay. Elizabeth. We're third season of Voyager. The purpose of all this
1: is to gain knowledge of the universe and the people in it. You
2: too are turning into a Star Trek script.
1: Yes, it is a little bit clucky, but hopefully it
0: will pay off in the long run. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the controversially named Voyager. In Season 3, Elizabeth, have you got a synopsis for us today? I do,
2: and it's from uh, Reader Reviews, or Watcher Reviews, from Hitchcock. And a very hostile and aggressive alien system comprised of thousands of little spaceships rears its composite head and gets in the way of Voyager's route home. Janeway decides she would rather put her crew in what could be absolutely uh, fatal danger than take a year to get around these things. Meanwhile, the Doctor is beginning to degrade. He is losing his memories. Kes sets about trying to make him get back on course. Unfortunately for crew members, if he is re he will lose all of his personality and memories, for instance, even knowing who Kes is. These two events are flip-flopped throughout the episode. There is some comic relief. And we forget what a piece of machinery the guy was at the beginning of the series. Yes, I would second that. Once again, Janeway is able to pull some absolutely amazing rabbits out of her hat, having deliberately put her crew in danger, I would add.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, I, I think that's a, a good summary, that review. I always know whether uh, I liked an episode at the end when I look back on my notes, and uh, I see that I've got not one but you know six or seven different quote of the weeks that I've taken the time to actually uh, uh, type out uh, verbatim because uh, there's so much good interplay, and this this is uh, one of those episodes. Most of the um, the great, uh, you know. Uh, um, a talk comes from the doctor and his interactions, but even the beginning is, is, is uh, interesting with uh, that little episode between Tom and Balana. And you're wondering is Tom jealous about Balana uh, being interested in this guy or, or that he's interested in her? Uh, is this the start of something more?
0: I wonder. I was wondering how we were going to broach uh, this, uh, or whether or not we'd even talk about it, or just let it go through to the keeper. But then uh, Elizabeth, during her watching and research last night, uh, learned the spoiler that down the track, uh, uh, a relationship between uh, the uh, the the dashing debonair handsome Tom Paris and the the forthright strong Belana um, Torres does develop.
2: Uh, let's rephrase that, shall we? Shall we say the womanizing? <laughs> Drinking in bars, um, totally living by the seat of his pants, Tom Paris manages to get Balana, who I'd say is a fairly fierce, cling-on um, feminist woman, to and actually convince her that he's his marriage material. It's not working for me, not yet.
0: I will I will confess that there is a remarkable redemption narrative that we're about to go on here in order to uh, to see that come to fruition, but. Uh, it is fascinating when I come back to the early seasons of Voyager, um, and 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 especially watching with people who haven't watched before, and uh, and and there is this negative appear uh, um uh, view of Tom Paris, which is just forgotten or not forgotten, but we grow out of because of the the shift in the character. And I I found I've had the same conversations about Dr. Julian Bashir in um Deep Space Nine. So this is not something unusual for Star Trek. They do like to take a. Uh, a a a character that we might not not be able to um consider to be uh hero material uh and uh, and slowly transform them into um something that we would find to be acceptable um for for um for ongoing relationship
1: and i have to say that i you know uh, i think tom's good at his womanizing like he he actually he's is, good he's, at it you know charming and uh, <laughs> I, I have to say, you know, I want to keep him well away from my wife because, you know, the offer of sailing on Lake Como would be just the sort of thing that would uh, attract her interest, I think. So what are we
0: saying, Lindsay? If you can't be good, be good at it. Is that is that it? No, 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 no. That is not
2: going to wash it all. I don't. I mean, I've never found Tom Paris particularly appealing from a romantic point of view. I think he is appealing as a character. I have warmed to him more than I did initially, but I'm not quite there as Balada marriage material.
1: Well, we'll have to see how that plays out. We then, will. We? Anyway, that's really just the uh, the setup for this story, is the, the two of them out there. and uh, uh, It's always interesting to wonder... Uh, looking back over the whole, you know, seven series or whatever, how much did the writers have in mind and how much were they just sort of noodling and then later they go, oh, there was a bit of a spark with Tom and Balada, why don't we do something with that, you know, or did they have a planned? Right from right from this moment,
0: it's one of my big disappointments in Star Trek. Actually, uh, up until this point, they get better at it going forward, but there really isn't um, much use of foreshadowing um, or, or mm. much use of of trying to work with with what exists or what may have existed before. I mean, even the fact that. Um, uh, uh, Robert Duncan McNeil um was um in Next Generation playing a very similar character in the Academy with Wesley Crusher called Nicholas Locarno, um and and his timeline would have been perfect. I, I'm I'm just not sure why it is that we don't have a a connective story between uh, the Nicholas Locarno who was thrown out of uh, Starfleet Academy um, for uh, reckless piloting behavior and nearly cost Wesley his career as well. Like they could have made a good link there. And I I kind of have. Mm. So we know that Tom Paris's father is a high admiral. Mm. We know that um, he's attempting to try and find his way through life without the support of his father. So I'm going to suggest that he entered the Starfleet Academy under the false name Nicholas Locarno so that he could actually be able to get through Starfleet Academy unbeknownst to his father or without that connection. Um, and, and when he was cast out of Starfleet Academy, that was the beginning of his journey towards uh, crime and uh, nefarious behaviour with the Marquis, which landed him into the New Zealand penal colony where we find him in episode one with Janeway. So there's my uh, my kind of uh, fix-up headcanon that connects Nicholas Locarno with Tom Paris. Let us know what you think um, in the comments section of Never Odd or Even as we uh, go on from there. It's as
2: good a theory as any, in my opinion. And I noticed that uh, the actor that plays the Doctor this week made that exact comment, not about Tom Paris, but about how Star Trek is not good at these arcs you know, taking a story arc throughout um, a series of episodes or even between the series um, of Star Trek, which they easily could do and which would actually give you a more well-rounded kind of um, script and storyline and character development than what we currently have in some cases.
1: So speaking of the Doctor, that's the second set-up scene, isn't it? We've got the, the Doctor in the holodeck, um, engaging with a, another holographic character. I, I always find this as quite amusing, you know, that the, the doctor's in there interacting with uh, another hologram for recreation. And uh, it's not going well because this soprano doesn't think much of his, uh, his rhythm. And uh, so one of, one of my quotes of, of the week, of course, is where she says, You're an amateur. You have no sense of rubato, no rallentando. It's like singing with a computer.
2: (laughs) Yes, that was good. And mine is a corollary of that. All the sopranos seem to have the most irritating personalities. They are arrogant, superior, condescending. I can't imagine anyone behaving that way.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes, I think they definitely skewered the Doctor on, on his own petard. In the, they one,
2: certainly didn't they? did. And I think that, again, when reading the notes in um, Memory Alpha Fandom, the actor really enjoyed that, um, you know, sending up that and that sense of humour and the irony of it. So that's what I've always loved about the Doctor. His scenes are generally, sometimes they're tense, but generally you get these really funny lines and it's good. It breaks the tension.
1: And it's interesting that that uh, insult, it, it's like singing with a computer, it is so well-crafted for this particular yes. story, which is exploring the ways in which the Doctor has become more than a computer uh, to the, the detriment, uh, it seems, of, of his uh, program because he's outgrown the matrices and uh, it's all falling apart.
2: And it was nice that his um, the holograph of his inventor Zimmerman fell on his um, holographic sword, as it were, or his memory matrix sword, and decided to eliminate himself from that program so the Doctor could survive um, and survive with that memory and those things. Though, of course, there's that moment of tension where he says, who are you, right at the end, and then he starts to sing the opera, so you think it's going to be all right.
0: This um trope in science fiction about what life is uh, is appears again and again in so many different movies and locations, and Star Trek plays with it. I mean, I, I I'll never forget the first time I watched uh, the Next Generation episode "The Measure of a Man," uh, where they uh, put D- Lieutenant, Lieutenant Commander Data on trial for his uh, sentience, for his to see whether or not he would be forced to undergo a refit. Uh, So almost the opposite of this one where Janeway is is actually very quick to acknowledge that um, they they can't just delete somebody. Um, But I remember uh, the very first time I think I encountered this kind of conversation was in the movie Short Circuit in 1986 where Johnny Five came alive because he got struck by lightning. This whole idea of uh, can we actually imbue something with, with true real sentient life is, I think, therefore I am enough, um, especially when it comes to holograms?
2: Well, apparently we can. Um, I don't subscribe to the New Scientist um, digital magazine anymore, um, but I still get their emails and a synopsis of everything that they're researching. And there's a whole article this week that I think Lindsay would be particularly interested in about how you make AI sentient. And the role of psychology in making AI sentient and and actually having AI behave and think and process like a human being. So apparently we are up to that now um, and looking at that.
1: Well, I, I I think I think there are researchers who are exploring the possible ways forward. Uh, I don't I don't think we're quite up to the stage of actually having anything that. Uh, has any measure of the kind of sentience that, that we understand. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're quite right that, that AI researchers are, are quite interested in this idea of evolving uh, consciousness and uh, the idea that um, uh, you wouldn't do it just by programming and preloading a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, into an AI, you would actually have to evolve that AI through relationships and discussion and, and uh, learning about the world uh, in the same sort of way that human children uh, learn about the world bit by bit and, and through relationships. Well, I
0: wonder whether it's happening already. I mean, like there is a sense in which, I mean, it's a little arrogant of us to assume that it can only happen if we're the ones who actually make it happen, that, that we're the only creator. Um, When we think about the internet and how it's actually evolved over the last couple of decades or even longer, um, there was a time where the internet was a place where people were communicating or transferring data to people. But now a massive proportion of the internet, I don't have the figures at hand, but I read them the other day, is is actually just computers talking to computers. Um, It's just algorithms connecting with algorithms, sharing and passing information they need to know. Um, if the internet was already a sentient being, how would we know? And would it tell us?
2: Probably not. If it had any brains, <laughs> it wouldn't. And assuming it does have brains, if it's sentient, it'll be very quiet about it.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think if it if it was, I suspect that we would see science because I, I'm I'm not sure that you go from the first glimmerings of that kind of conscious intelligence to. A full blown. I have a sense of who I am and who others are, and my need to, um, you know, hide myself from others. I think I think that's a that's a fairly big leap. I suspect that you would see the signs of something along the line. Um, I I quite like actually. I mean, again, it's quite um, uh, brought together, uh, shortened, but uh, the way they're tackling this in uh, Star Trek Discovery. Uh, is quite good where you just get these little hints of, of the, the fact that the, um, the ship's computer has got these capacities that no one knew about and, and they, they drop that for a few episodes and you know Burnham's kind of looking a little askance at some of the things the computer says because these little hints come out that that there's more there than you expect. Well, it's
2: like in a Space Odyssey where Hal becomes quite malignant and takes over his own way of seeing the world and what he's going to do. And it's without any reference to his human creators, really.
0: That's right. I'm sorry, Elizabeth. I can't do that. That's right. (laughs) The day when uh, I get a fan review from um, uh, Skynet telling me that they're really enjoying Deep Faith 9 will be a a, a fabulous experience for me. (laughs) Hopefully there'll be a little bit of time to revel in that glory before they burn the sky and get rid of us all together. Indeed, indeed.
1: So, I mean, this whole, um, uh, you know, I I guess you'd call it the B plot, although in some ways I think it's the A plot, about the the Doctor uh, is is a great one, you know, and there's some really good interchanges. Um, You've mentioned, Elizabeth, the fact that, um, or, or was it, you will, that Janeway quite quickly... Uh, comes to the, the point of recognising that they can't just sort of scrub the doctor yeah. and start from scratch. But it does take, again, interestingly, Kes's intervention. Uh, you know, you'll remember quite some time back that it was Kess who went to the captain and said, you know, we've got to treat the doctor differently. Um, and uh, again, here it's Kes who steps in and says that wouldn't be appropriate to treat him just like a machine and to wipe him and start again. Uh, that 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 would be wrong, and later uh in the interchange with uh, the dr Zimmerman character, the diagnostic routine, uh Kess makes the point which I think is a good one, which is that these things that the doctor has learned are not just interesting and are not just for his benefit but it makes him a better doctor, that he understands emotions and that he understands more about the human condition yeah,
2: I thought that was um. Those scenes where she does that I thought were quite poignant and also quite insightful in a number of ways. <clears throat> and it reminded me of how we deal with Alzheimer's and various forms of dementia with people that we love, and which is a bit pertinent at the moment because we seem very prepared with COVID to just throw them on the scrap heap of their collateral damage to the virus. And the economy and everything else is much more important. And those things were raised for me. What makes someone important? What makes them someone, you know, who is to be cherished and who is to be protected, if you like, and um, healed in a way that, or um, looked after in a way that is um, dignified and, and fitting to the occasion?
0: I thought along similar lines too that the um, the 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 touch on um Kess and the doctor as the doctor is is literally slowly losing his mind, um uh, shows what a what a painful, difficult, and often unsupported task it is to be the primary carer of someone who who um uh, not only is is struggling to function independently but actually will um, sometimes aggressively resist any level of support or, or help um, and so you could see um, Kes's pain um, in that as as she was actually the primary advocate and primary target of the of the well I would call it disease that that she was facing
2: and she becomes the primary carer you know like the doctor trying to go out into the corridor I have been in hospital many times and often There is an elderly person in the ward I've been in with pneumonia and dementia and they wander. They've got locked doors and they want to go out and they don't understand why they can't go out and when someone pushes a buzzer for a nurse, they think it's the doorbell and they want to go and answer the door or make a cup of tea for people coming in. And even though these people aren't my friends or my relatives, um, it was really terrible to watch. That deterioration and that unknowingness of who you are and where you are.
1: And it's interesting, like the the when it's first starting, the doctor's coping strategy uh, of covering over the fact that he's he's forgetting things, you know. And so he he he's about to start the the procedure, and he says to Kes, "Oh, a test for you, you know. What what's the first step in this procedure?" And you can see in in his eyes and his uh, facial expressions that he's forgotten, but he's using this, this uh, little uh, way of, of coping and trying to make sense of things. And uh, uh, we uh, in our family uh, are dealing with someone with Alzheimer's at the moment, and, and you see that quite regularly where they will um, uh, um, sometimes confabulate, tell make up stories about how they know something or how they recognize a, a certain place. Uh, that are just not true, um, and and we know that. But they're, you know, clearly trying to pull the pieces together in a way that makes sense to them.
0: As a as a person who uh, has that that history of Alzheimer's and dementia in, in my own family, um, I have often tried to look on the bright side of the of the illness. Um, I may be able to read books again for the first time and maybe even watch some of my favourite episodes of Star Trek without actually... So this idea of a reset um, is whilst it might actually remove a whole range of experience, there, there, there's... For me personally, I would say that there's there's always a sense of grief when I've completed a series or read a book or um, and, and I've wondered what it would be like to be able to just sort of pull huge pieces of my at least entertainment information out of my brain so I could actually start over
2: i just reread them again doesn't worry me i've done it once <laughs> you always find new things round second time
0: it's true yeah,
1: there there is a there is a joy you know when you come back to something that you haven't watched or read for for a long long time and and suddenly things begin to surprise you again that 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 is something uh, really wonderful but i think the the dark side that this uh, episode portrays uh, quite clearly is, is that in the process of lo- losing memory, it's not just I, I'm an individual and these memories are something external and I can still be me without those memories. As you lose the memories, you actually lose a part of who you are. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I certainly, uh, you know, hope that you will, that you never face this, but uh, you, you know, I think the The problem is you might not just lose your memories of science fiction, you might lose your love for science fiction. Yes. (laughs) Oh, that's right. Yes, it is. And that's
2: quite true. You might find yourself just a different... Some folk, as they advance well into dementia, become like different people. And that's very sad for their families, not just not recognising families, but seem to be developing character traits that weren't the character traits of the person they knew and loved for the last 60 years or whatever it was, and that must be incredibly hard.
0: Now, I wanted to look also at the cause of what what happened here. So from what we understand with the diagnostic that comes in from uh, the holographic version of Dr Zimmerman, who, by the way, actually provides me with my quote of the week this week, um, uh, following on from the running joke of Dr McCoy's famous phrase, I'm a doctor, not a blank. Um, he says, I'm a diagnostic tool, not an engineer. Um, so he's he's, he's running a, a variation on that phrase. But, but he, he clearly states that the reason why this has occurred is that they've actually attempted to put things into his memory banks that should, well, he was never designed to have there, um, that there was too much information, uh, and that he had lost his focus in some ways on being an emergency medical hologram. By actually attempting to be an opera singer and a and a lover and a fighter, um, you know, like all of these things that are actually in in this there, um, and he lists off there and recounts the the things that that shouldn't be there. Um, I, I thought that was a fascinating idea of, of and 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 made me wonder whether or not we're all in danger of this with the information <laughs> overload that we currently. Uh, are experiencing in our world at the moment with with far more data to take in than we could possibly manage. Well, we
2: never remember everything we've done in our lives. It may be buried deep somewhere in our cortexes, but you can't just have it all to hand all the time um, because you can't function with all of those things there. You can only function um, being able to know and do and understand a set group of things at a given time, whatever that group of things. with, And we know that things like a smell or a picture or something like that can trigger memories that you've forgotten about, you know, things come up. So I think that the doctor, um, I suppose in trying to remember stuff, if we look at it that way, he doesn't have the capacity that the human creature has to bury it somewhere. It's all part of his program. And and I guess that's why it becomes like too much data. He's, his disk drives full, if I put it crudely like that, and it overwhelms mm. him.
1: I think you're right, Will, that, that um, you know, there, there is a struggle for humans uh, with information overload and the ability to focus on what is important as opposed to things that are not, uh, or to be able to tell what information is, is useful and good information and what information is actually disinformation. So I think that's all true. I think the other thing that, that this, again, does for me is it, it's, it's, again, uh, an example of that difference between an expert system and, and a conscious sentience. Mm. That, you know, in, in an expert system, you just want it to have all the data and really clear rules about what to do with that data. Um, and and there are many um, parts of life where an expert system is exactly the right answer to how do we best uh, process information. But the the thing it doesn't have is creativity, the the ability to you know put together two disparate uh, bits of information in a way that no one would have ever expected. And I think that often comes out of those uh, additional bits of information. You know you. You think about an aria in an opera, and and suddenly the way the aria jumps from one thing to another sparks an idea about how to put two scientific facts together. So uh, it's a it's a fascinating idea, and and I think again uh, one of those uh, big differences between uh, something that's purely mechanistic and and something that has the kind of consciousness that that we enjoy. it doesn't
2: have the emotional kind of connections that we enjoy either, that are attached to memories and that are attached to decision making. We might all like to think we're very objective with our decision making, but of course we're not. Past experience, memory, emotion, all of those things will be brought to bear on how we make those connections and how we discern and move about our environment.
1: Actually, Kes um, makes the comment to Zimmerman that the doctor has taken it upon himself to be someone who grows and learns and feels. And, and I wondered, you know, is that just like three words pulled out of the ether or, or, or is there something really substantial about those three uh, words growing and learning and feeling and, and what they mean for being a person?
0: Yeah, look, I I think these are really great. I don't have any answers to those questions. They're just they're just massive. Like, um, and and it really comes into, I mean, I remember when I was at school and even before me that that just teaching and education was all about that uploading of data and pushing that data in and and but now when I'm talking to teachers, um, the pedagogy in our postmodern space is actually about teaching people how to process, how to access. Um, and and I've heard it said lots of times, maybe too many times, we're preparing children today for jobs that don't exist yeah. yet. Um, so education can no longer be about rote learning or regurgitating data, um, but actually working out how to form those patterns, as you say, Lindsay. Um, earlier today, I was watching uh, on ABC and they were talking about... Um, uh william barton an aboriginal um musician who's combining didgeridoo playing with uh with classical music and and i suddenly had a spark in my brain and said i wonder what the notations for that look like i mean when you're writing the composition what does that look like and uh, and and so suddenly that new piece of information sent me down a rabbit hole to look at something entirely new and i i think i think i think that's where sentience comes in, um, to actually be able to pursue something new rather than actually staying with the data set we've been provided.
2: I think it's also, I think emotions are more important than we're giving them credit for. I'll come back to that because you can't just pump knowledge into people Well, you can try and people can rate can, learn yeah. <laughs> and they forget stuff often. Um, when when we've done it that way, Um, but if you are inspired by what you are learning to either learn more Mm. or to create from it, if there's that emotional feeling of excitement and creativity that emerges from that, you're much more likely to explore it, to retain it, to actually develop it and grow. People who have no capacity to feel like psychopaths don't grow. They can't because they can't be self-reflective. They can't actually get excited about something, and um, they well, they might, but it's all the wrong things. Um, and they can't actually look at themselves as a person and <clears throat> look at how things develop.
1: And and I think that the other thing that I found interesting about that little triumvirate was the the linking of feeling with learning, mm. because again, it it's a reminder. Uh, of some of the the current thinking in AI and certainly of our experience as humans that that we we do learn through feelings um, and, um, and and that's emotional intelligence is an important part of what it means to be a thinking person uh, and uh, so you know there, there's some interesting intertwining there of, of feeling with learning and growing I think that's
2: what I mean by emotion Lindsay um, because there is, I've always said that the, the greatest thing that a minister must have to actually function in ministry is the capacity to self-reflect. If you don't have the capacity to self-reflect, you will never grow. You won't, you won't grow spiritually or in knowledge or in humility or in any other way, because you'll just assume that you are what you are. And I just think that um, for ministry, that's just not going to be a successful way forward for anybody.
1: Yep, yep. Mm. Well, we probably need to uh, push on from the doctor story to the other one, but just before we do, I, I can't help but uh, mention a couple more uh, Quote of the Week possibilities. Uh, one, one was um, Balana talking to the doctor and simply saying, you're questioning my bedside manner. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and, and then the other one was uh, with um, uh, uh, Kess and uh, the captain talking to Zimmerman uh, where he says, either you re it or live with the knowledge that eventually this EMH will end up with the intellectual capacity of a past <laughs>
0: <laughs> I uh, I have to say it's it's going to be hard to make that transition to the so-called A story. We we all seem to have loved the B story, um, and and maybe they've misnamed it. I, I'm thinking the only reason why the A story is considered the A story is because the name of the episode is called the Swarm. Yep. Um, if the episode had have been called um, dementia or the decline or uh, uh, um, my dear doctor, um, you know, we would have actually have flipped this very quickly over and made it the, the, uh, the A story. I just wanted to mention too, Robert Picardo is an accomplished singer. Uh, and while he was at Yale University, he was a member of the Society of Orpheus and Bacchus, the second longest running undergraduate cappella group in the United States. So there's a nice little bit of trivia for you here. Um, this was a way of uh, life intruding into the creative art of, um, of writing for the doctor.
2: I don't know if he considers himself yes, that indeed. accomplished a singer when you read his notes in the um, Underneath in Memory <laughs> Alpha fandom, but I thought he had quite a passable voice.
0: Yeah, I was pleased.
1: Mm. I think um, coming back to your point about A stories and B stories, probably the presumption uh, in earlier times, and I think it's very debatable now, but probably the presumption in earlier times was that the the A story was the one that was about the whole crew or the the whole ship, whereas the B or C stories were the ones that were little bits of extra, you know, life. Uh, added, uh, you yes. know, by learning little bits about characters on the ship. But I think, I think, you know, as as modern science fiction progressed, uh, that that often was inverted, and the more important story, and the one that the the writers perhaps wanted to put more weight on, uh, became the personal story that was um, perhaps highlighted by something that was going on in the whole ship uh, context. Well, I mean, the
2: Doctor's persona. And how he's been relating to all the crew and the relationships and he's developed and what he's learned seemed to me much more important to the well being of voyager providing they mm. can you know um, avoid getting um, taken over by these swarm it just seemed to me that we needed to have a bit of a sort of rough up hit and miss shoot up kind of thing to make it really science fiction Um, And I don't know why that was there, but to just introduce that element of suspense or tension or something, because I felt the Doctor story was far more developed than the story of these swarm aliens. And I thought there were holes, again, I could drive that Mack truck through in terms of how it was dealt with and resolved by um, Voyager.
0: You could almost forget that um, that story was taking place. Uh, you know, it was just kind of like every now and then we get that reminder. It's a bit like, as I as I go through uh, at the moment, you know, the major tension in the world is is between um, Russia and Ukraine. Um, but with the day to day life and personal stories I'm engaging with, you forget that, and then suddenly a news broadcast reminds you. Oh, yes, that's still happening out there. And and so I, I think there was a, it was it was a really interesting way of, of actually having the primary story be in the background and the secondary story being in the foreground. Um, and um, I, I found that fascinating.
1: And, and they did actually, uh, I think, um, combine the two in an interesting way because the, the, the situation of Voyager is such that the person who would normally have to look after issues with technology, Belana is not freely available because she's trying to make sure the ship doesn't get, you know, eaten up or whatever it, it might be. And so that's, that's the context in which Kes uh, actually chooses to step up and to, to um, uh, go back and, and restart the diagnostic routine and have that conversation with Zimmerman that ends up, uh, you know, coming up with the, the answer in the end. So it, it, uh, it was quite interesting that it's, it's Balana's absence uh, that forces Kess uh, to to go in and and be the person who makes things happen for the doctor. As you noted
2: too, that that's a role she has taken on before. So it seemed it was to me a logical development of that, and obviously she's a fast learner and can think laterally, which I, but I thought it was a more important thing. And these aliens were really a bit peripheral.
1: So, I mean, the, the, the setup for the A story or whatever it is, the, the swarm story anyway, let's call it that, it is that um, there are these, um, you know, tiny little uh, things. Uh, we don't know initially that they're tiny little things. And they're not that tiny because they're big enough to hold, you know, humanoid creatures. Um, but um, basically they've got territory and Neelix tells the captain they don't like people coming into their territory. Um And Janeway makes the decision that they're going to go through the territory anyway Mm -hmm. uh, because they don't want to, you know, add an extra 15 months uh, to their journey. Now, I never understand how the time and distance works in Star Trek because that just seems incredible to me. But anyway, um, you know, Harry says it'll take them 15 months to go around and Janeway says, well, we're not going to do that. Um, and, And really surprises Tuvok. Who reminds her that actually, uh, it's against Starfleet regulations for them to just go through um territory of another people's um uh without without permission. Um, but Janeway, Janeway's really, I i wondered whether you know, hanging out with uh, Sulu in that uh, holographic form the previous week has has uh, rubbed off on her and she's. Turned into a bit of a cowboy. Oh my! She seemed almost, almost gleeful, <laughs> didn't she, at, at the idea that they were going to cross through this space. It, 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 it was something that she was almost uh, enjoying and remembering, uh, sneaking past her parents as a teenager and whatnot. I
2: just found that what bugged me about it was that fifteen months becomes a greater consideration than actually having the crew intact. Because from what Neelix says, and then she actually has that confirmed by the alien they find on this battered ship, that this mob just take no prisoners, literally. And if they get you, they will crush you, suck all the goodies out of you and kill you all. And you will have very little defence against this with the way they operate. And she chooses to do it anyway. Surely spending another 12 months wandering around this territory is better than being dead. I would have thought. Well,
0: and I had major problems with it anyway. They're looking at that map and it's on a flat plane as if they're actually travelling across the surface of a planet. I mean, did we bother to actually look up or down or sideways? Or, you know, like how much, like, are are we saying that that narrow gap that we're going to cross is actually um, goes infinitely down and infinitely up I mean are they going on a bear hunt here uh, did they have to go through it? Um, you know I, I it, to me it just seemed to lack a connection with what 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 three-dimensional space is like and and how vast space is I mean trying to control space um, is 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 beyond our understanding and 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 su- surely, um, I, I would have hoped that the writers might have actually put a little bit more effort into thinking about the dynamics of yep. space travel.
1: Yep. yep. And, and I think the interesting thing, you know, was um, uh, Harry, I think it is, makes the comment, you know, there's no way that they could actually patrol uh, a, a, an area like yep. that, which is, which is quite true. So why do they cross when they can see that there's a vessel five light years away? Now, five light years is a long way to us humans. Uh, You know, that's further than our nearest uh, star. But But not uh, at warp. In in Star Trek, yeah, in Star Trek um, (laughs) times, okay, five light years are not that far. So why don't they go somewhere else to cross? That's right. You know, where they can't. They can't see any of these uh, things and around. And the other thing
2: mm-hmm. that bugged me is once they come up with this miraculous way of cloaking themselves, of course they see an abandoned ship and you've got to actually come out of your disguise <laughs> that has protected you and the Karoo and go and see if that sign of life is a termite or a cockroach or some whatever it is and put everyone at risk. That really, really annoyed me.
0: Especially after they left all of those criminals still locked away in the in the ship last exactly. week, where they kind of went, well, yeah. we're not going to interfere with these people who 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 might be being treated unjustly, but we're going to go and have a look at weak life life signs on a dilapidated ship, just so we can have a tragic dramatic moment where the uh, the uh, alien played by Steve Husker, um, uh, Chardis uh, gets to die going, It was, it was, uh, you know, <laughs> like, uh,
2: and we know they're unforgiving because of the Balana and the Tom Paris that has met them
0: to shoot them, yeah.
1: <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Although, I did wonder about that because I mean, if they're, if they're so you know, um, <laughs> martial and all this sort of stuff, why did they do such a bad job? Uh, you know, killing Ballana and
2: Tom. That was yeah. just because they had to, Lindsay, because I thought the same thing. It was a shot thing. across the bow. They should have. T- yeah, it was a shot yeah, across the okay. bow. It was a warning. It must have been because you can't explain yeah. rather than you don't want to kill off two of your primary characters.
0: And if you just kill everybody <laughs> on the edge of your space, people will still keep coming in. In fact, they'll they'll continue to come in to find out what happened. But if you seriously injure and, and make people watch them die slowly Mm -hmm. um then um people might think twice like it's it's a bit like that um what was it uh prince of spry they were talking about the dread pirate roberts Mm -hmm. um you know who killed all of the survivors um you know well if you killed all of the survivors then nobody gets to tell the tale so you've got to let some escape there's no point being a a a dreadful pirate uh, if no one's ever heard of you
2: i'm guessing that's why when neelix says the only ships that have come out of that territory, all the crew was dead. And that's yep. that's a big warning sign because Nelix hasn't met these characters, but he knows all about it because of those warning right. signs. But I just figured it was a plot necessity, Lindsay. You just can't kill them off. Well, of
1: course. <laughs> uh, well, uh, of course, but I think we like our plot necessities to actually... Uh, you know, uh, arise from and make sense within the context of the story rather than just being sort of plopped there. Um, uh, coming back to your comment, Elizabeth, about stopping for the, um, the, the life sign, um, it, it wouldn't be Starfleet oh. to, to avoid that. And, and, you know, I mean, I think that for me, that's part of my uh, discomfort with the previous episode that Will mentioned. Uh, is that it didn't seem very Starfleet for them just to rush in, grab their own people and, and leave all the other prisoners there. Uh, it certainly wouldn't be Starfleet for them to keep going. And I wonder whether there's not something about the human condition in that, because I think we are attuned to certain types of distress that we respond to emotionally in different ways than other things. And I think, you know, as humans... Uh, You know, if you hear a baby crying or whatever, that's something that triggers a certain response um, uh, that that mightn't be triggered by another kind of cry or scream or whatever. And the immediacy of coming across someone in need triggers something for us, whereas the fact that there are people in need and dying and starvation or whatever... Uh, you know on the other side of the earth all the time doesn't trigger that for us because we're not confronted with the immediacy of that we haven't run a- across that person so I think I think there is something natural and human about that response that that says we've come across this person we've got to help
2: um, I agree with you about immediacy being really important because um, We were talking, John and I were talking about this this morning about how people don't respond in the same way if you tell them their clothes are cheap because they're made in sweatshops. And I'm of the opinion if you want to buy cheap clothes, a condition should be you go and live in a sweatshop and work there for a week. Um, And then we'll see how you feel at the end of that. Uh, But what got me particularly about this one is the fact that they're cloaked for a reason. We know what this lot do. And they're cloak to protect the crew, the crew, so they get through that space, and to uncloak themselves to go and get what could be a dying, as I said, rabbit, um, seemed to me really foolish.
0: They forgot what their mission was. They gave up their victory <clears throat> conditions um, for a side quest, <laughs> and uh, you know, I I I agree. I think I think there's something really important for us to learn here: is that it's actually very easy sometimes. Um, to to um, I guess lose um, th- our path and our direction. I mean, uh, one of the things I'm spending a lot of time doing with uh, in in our region at the moment is actually helping churches to remember that we're not community centres, uh, building maintainers, and um, and uh, uh, asset managers. Um, that we're actually Christians who are actually seeking to show the love and compassion. Uh, of of Jesus Christ to the world, and so like the you know when we go off mission, we can actually do it for the right reasons and 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 do it for practical reasons, but actually um, find ourselves um, not achieving the things that we we wanted to achieve. If they had kept going, they would have just got to the other side, and um, Balana could have fixed the doctor. Everything would be great.
1: Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I, come on. The the the, the Christian the christian message is actually about mm. self sacrifice not not uh, looking after yourself um and and your own and i mean i think i think the interesting thing is that that you you've both referred to the idea that they decloaked to check out the ship that's not correct they were still cloaked they still had the the shield harmonics going the right way what what the downfall was was that there's one of those little buggy things left if that hadn't been there they could have rescued the guy and been on their way and they would that was going to happen
0: of course yeah. it was going to happen lindsay <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> come on and I, look i i think sometimes there's a there's a there's a terrible misreading of the story of the good samaritan um the reality is that when we start to delve into the cultural context both the priest and the, and the lawyer had excellent reasons for continuing along the way, um, and, I, and I'm not wanting to say, "Oh, we should do that," but but the reality is, you know, that 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 communities that they had their focus on would have lost access to their to their expertise. Um, that the Samaritan actually had the time and place and context to be able to help. Mm. Um, so I wonder whether it's actually too simplistic of an interpretation of that story sometimes to say, oh, Samaritan, good, uh, powerful priest and lawyer, wrong, bad, you know, that that, that there's actually a, a much greater complexity to that story than just kind of a, a simplistic, um, uh, you know, um, Samaritan's a good guy, do like Samaritan kind of thing. Um, I, I think we do have to weigh up who we are and the cost of our actions uh, and and make decisions based on that.
2: We do, but I'm going to call bullshit um, on that interpretation, which was a popular...
0: We've gone explicit. We've gone explicit. (laughs) We're going to have to tick the E-box this week.
2: (laughs) Because um, I think that's a popular Christian interpretation that's rubbish. Um, And if you read Jewish law about purity laws and about how you... People become impure all the time, doing their jobs and living their lives in the Jewish system. And there's all sorts of things that you can put that right. So this mm-hmm. Christian reading into stuff, saying, "Well, the priest might have been on a way to something, and he couldn't, he didn't, couldn't be impure, and he couldn't touch a body because, and the and the Levite couldn't do it. They're both priests anyway, um, and they couldn't do it because they might become impure or ruin something. Rubbish, nonsense. This is easily fixed. so. Am I
0: hearing correctly? Then we should always <laughs> stop. Um, yes. We should always them. <laughs> yes. Great. Excellent. Well, that's good. So they did the right thing by stopping to check and uh, and to be the good Samaritan to, to assist this person. I think Jesus
2: is making the point that they did the wrong thing and the loathed and despised Samaritan. Think of him as a member. No, I mean
0: Voyager. I was talking Voyager. about Voyager. Voyager did the right but, thing by actually stopping In the stopping story to, of the uh, good
2: Samaritan, yes, they did.
1: If they want to be Christians, they did the Are right they not thing. Christian? If they want to be Starfleet, maybe no, they well,
0: didn't. No, we don't know that, Elizabeth. We don't know. That, that's an assumption. Now, because, because and, and I wanted to get to this, Chakotay says that they would be lit up like a Christmas tree, which made mm. me think, wow, Christmas is still going. Christmas trees are still going. They're still celebrating Christmas in uh, in 2373. Your point, so, Will, that so...
2: doesn't make them Christian.
0: It doesn't make them not Christian. Oh, either. get so out My of point it. is, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know the answer. We, but you know, not, they, some they, of them they,
2: probably are, but mostly, I don't think they are. And so many people <laughs> in our society. Didn't,
0: didn't
1: we also have a reference
0: to Jonah <clears throat> earlier in Voyager. Yeah, yeah. I, I think <laughs> I, I think there might be the case to be made that that there might be still some Christian followers inside the uh, the humanist Star Trek universe. More,
2: far more secular people celebrate Christianity than Christians do. We're outweighed. They do two or three to one when it comes to that. Absolutely. So. Look,
0: I, I'm not arguing that. I, I, I'm just saying that the possibility exists that they may still be um, people who are who are following. Now, I don't expect that Bolana or Chocote or um, but maybe. But, but but certainly I, I hear enough from, um, from Janeway to think that, that she's certainly using a, a, a Christian framework for understanding many of the decisions that she's trying to do. And she is the one that often actually references these stories from, from the Christian tradition. I
2: think at the time Star Trek was written, that was just society. We were seen as getting mm. our ethical moral principles from our Judea, Christ, Judea Christian um, traditions.
1: Mm. And, and, and what I want to say is, isn't that in fact correct? That, that if, if we had so done our job as Christians as salt and light, that we had transformed society into a society that cared for the vulnerable, uh, stopped when they found, you know, hurt people on the wayside, uh, you know, uh, tried to do the good, etc., uh, etc., in in what way would that uh, not be the, the the ultimate fulfilment of of our task as Christians, whether or not those people celebrated um, Christmas? Well, I think
2: so, Lindsay. I think you've summed it up quite well.
1: Anyway, uh, all all of this to to say that they they do stop and uh, say so they then uh, have uh, this uh, run in with um, these. I, I I wanted to go back to Janeway's initial. Uh, uh, decision though because I think uh, even you know I, I agree with her decision to stop I didn't agree with her decision to go through in the first place and I think it was interesting one leads that, to the other though. No, that's I mean, right oh it, it does it does that that's true but um you know it she she makes the comment uh, to um Tuvok we're a long way from Starfleet Lieutenant I'm not about to waste 15 months because we've run into a bunch of bullies. Mm-hmm. And I think, firstly, she characterises them as bullies without any particular justification. I don't think that saying, hey, this is our territory and we'd rather people not come into it makes you, by definition, a killing ordinary, people and right? sending um, their
2: dead bodies out on their ship probably does, Lindsay. Well, okay. Okay. There is that small point.
1: I'll, I'll, I'll agree with you. Yeah, that. I know what kind of school you went to, Lindsay, but to, yeah.
0: that's a bit hard.
1: Come on, didn't you have, you know, like stakes at the front of your school? <laughs> yeah, you little spikes with <laughs> their heads on the back. it's yeah.
0: not mean, welcome. The, the, yeah, it's great. The,
1: the other thing I thought was interesting was that we're a long way from Starfleet. Like, the only reason to follow Starfleet regulations is, you know, you might get in trouble because they're looking over your shoulder. Mm. They're never going to know, so who cares, you know? And that's quite counter to the Janeway, who has actually seen herself and her crew as the embodiment of Starfleet in the Delta yeah. Quadrant oh. and, 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 and the insistence that we will continue to live out the principles of Starfleet where we are. Uh, we're not a marquee ship. We're not a, a combined ship. We're a Starfleet ship.
0: Oh Well, let's blame uh, Tuvok's memory of Tuv, uh, of Sulu yes. who's been imprinted into uh Jane exactly. Not, not even the real Sulu, just, <coughs> just uh, Tuvok's Sulu impression. Uh.
2: Yes, I think that I agree with you, Will. I think something of that must have rubbed off on her from that episode because it is quite cowboy of her, as you say, Lindsay. To we
0: must keep an eye on this as we go forward to see whether or not this trend continues, or whether or not she returns to her uh, her, her more uh, reasoned self. Yes. Well, we will see. And we I thought
2: see. the whole repulsion of the swarm was just one of those A
1: bit too easy in the last. I three think minutes. so, Lindsay.
2: <laughs> I think so. And these horrible people all appear and, of course, all of them get shot except some nameless poor dude is sacrificed and shot by the swarm aliens. I don't know his name but all the rest of the main characters manage to get their stun guns out or whatever they are, phases, and, and shoot, dispatch these nasty aliens except the poor, poor guy at the console who gets himself shot. We don't know if he lives or dies. We don't know his name. I thought that was very poor.
0: Well, there's an interesting comment on community there. As a swarm, they were quite uh, intimidating and frightening whenever they stayed together. But whenever they got separated into individuals, they got picked off very quickly. Um, so there is a sense in which you know we're we we're, we're stronger together. There's a there's something about uh, being uh, greater than the sum of our parts um, in there. Because certainly, I agree with you. They 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 were just being shot down like um like like birds you know there was just like there was no sitting ducks no resistance yeah they just didn't um they appeared and got killed and appeared and got well I don't know they got killed or they just beamed back out again I don't know I think what, they got what killed what pinky thing was so
1: but I thought that well my my own headcanon on this is that they're they're not used to big ships yes you know so like they're, they're all in single little ships and and I think they've got this sort of misconception and so they imagine they're going to beam over and maybe it's more like with Tom and Balana and, and it's just going to be a one-on-one mm. thing. And so the idea that they're beaming into a room surrounded by 20 of their enemies uh, does, doesn't occur to them. That's my head. Well, that's
2: canon, pretty anyway. stupid, giving the size of them compared <laughs> to the size of Voyager. They're not very bright if that's what they're thinking, Lindsay.
1: Mm. Well, maybe they're only bright when they're
0: all together in the swarm
1: yeah. and as individuals, as well said, they're not very bright.
0: That's right. When they get separated, they lose their, their 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 synapses, their connected synapses, and then they um they become they become less able to make good decisions. I
2: thought they were like Matthew's gospel; they all went in pairs, because they seemed to appear in <laughs> pairs when they in appeared pairs. on the ship and were quickly taken out by as I said, named characters, not the poor nameless man that gets pff, off he goes.
1: <laughs> the, the, the other interesting thing that I think came out of this story, just as a, a little by thing, was um, uh, the comment, uh, I guess it was from Janeway, about how they couldn't translate their yes. language and, and her comment that maybe their language is so unlike ours that the universal translator just can't cope. And, and I think that's an interesting one. You know, Will regularly reminds us not to be too anthropocentric in our you know, viewpoints and, and you know, the idea that there are different ways of thinking and imagining and using language out there that we might not be able to comprehend at all.
0: Yes. And, and maybe they'd put technology and effort and cultural research into having a, a language that couldn't be interpreted because there is power in actually not being able to be understood or overheard by people. So... So perhaps that was something that they had culturally put effort into as well as as part of their xenophobia and um and um desire to be left alone. Well, they
2: so certainly were um foreigner phobic, shall we say? Mm. <laughs> and even when mm. um I think it's Ensign Kim is trying to translate what he's saying. He says the best he can do with it is too late. <laughs> you should <laughs> listen. That's right. Yep. Too late. <laughs>
1: You should have listened to our warning, which you couldn't understand. Exactly. That's correct.
2: <laughs> and you wonder, is that part of the deal, that, you know, this not understanding the warning? You have to wonder if they're just a psychopathic bunch that like blowing people up. Well, mm. I wondered that.
0: But they've... They... I also wondered why if they were very interested in actually keeping a territory, why they didn't make it a sphere because that would have been a lot easier to maintain than this wibbly-wobbly thing, unless they, maybe they were growing it around resources they need. Um, but um, it didn't seem to be a very defensible shape that they'd actually formed for themselves in terms of territory.
2: No, it didn't. And no. it could be like a lot of territories, and, and the an accident of history.
1: The idea that they have a sensor net, which actually covers the whole of the 3D shape uh, that, that's going to take Voyager 15 months to fly around is is just incredible. Like, yep.
2: I, I think ludicrous is yeah. the word you're looking for. That's
1: yeah, <laughs> true, yeah. Yes, It'd, well. You know, hard enough to build a Dyson sphere, let alone a, a, a sensor net going around, you know, that, that extent of territory
0: inconsistencies in the a story aside the b story was far better i agree <laughs> it
1: was a lot of fun it, it was fun and it had some really
0: interesting sort of stuff about
1: the play, place memory uh, holds in in making us who we are and 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 i love the doctor on doctor action i told you not to talk Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: the way that zimmerman keeps who's a, is himself a hologram is talking to cats the human and he's, not, and he's not interested in talking to it, <laughs> the hologram. I mean, geez, that was harsh.
0: Although he didn't, you know, step away from the fact that he was also an it and was quite happy to allow himself to be grafted in um, into the doctor. So basically that statement that says, well, you realise, of course, that you won't have a diagnostic hologram anymore. And they said, well, well if we fix this, we won't need a diagnostic. <laughs> and I'm kind of going... Wow, that's great. So we're going to kill you um, because if we could fix this one, we won't need you anymore. I'm kind of like, So we, we, we had an interesting shift there about familiarity and who we kill and who we keep alive too. Yeah,
2: and who's cherished by us mm. because Zimmerman's yep. hologram well. isn't known.
1: It's not known, but it's also not a hologram, which has actually um, experienced and, and learned and yes. grown. Yes. careful, like, Lindsay. Like the doctor.
0: Because, you know, we could say the same thing about babies, couldn't we?
2: I don't think you can compare yeah, it to a yeah. baby. That's probably a bit pushing the friendship.
0: But in terms of, uh, like, there's a different feeling when it comes to a baby, absolutely. Like, we we would never um, go, All right, we have to run, ditch the baby. Like, you know, we would never do that. Yeah. Um, um, well,
2: some people might, I don't know if you ever saw MASH's final movie, Farewell, Amen and Goodbye or something like that. It was called and it starts with, um, oh, I can't think, Alan Alda's character in with the psychiatrist and he's talking about a chicken on a bus. They're on a bus and they're trying to avoid being captured by the Viet Cong and this chicken is killed by this woman, but it turns out she smothered a baby
0: yeah yep. because
2: um he kept saying can you keep the baby quiet and then it was so terrible what she'd done in his mind he'd made he it, rewrite re- it rewrite it in his mind and it took a while to get it out so I think under extreme due west, we might do that
1: yep but uh, I mean I think you know I, if, if you really wanted to go down that kind of analogy it, it's more an unimplanted embryo than a baby and and I think you know there are different ways of thinking about uh, you know, what you do with embryos left over after IVF or whatever. Um, and, uh, and we don't necessarily accord that the same kind of uh, respect that we might for a, a human baby or for an adult or whatever.
0: Well, we certainly um, will get the chance to talk about some of those issues in future episodes. Um, and um, that those doors will remain open for us to have those conversations. Um, didn't really end up talking about um, uh, Tom and Bellana's uh, beginnings. Of uh, this is the first time Tom Paris actually um, makes a, a, a romantic uh, advance towards Bellana. Is that what you called um, it? Which, which, which she rebuffed. He asked her out, uh, and, and she said no. Um, so, like, so really, this is the first time we've we've seen that, um, and um, yeah. So I think that next week um, we are going to be launching into something which does take into account previous storylines, um, and um, and I think very cleverly so. Um, as we uh, have a look at uh, the episode "False Prophets" in next week. Um, and I, 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 in order for that to make a bit more sense, we've actually circulated amongst the team a link back to the uh, to the uh, the episode, The Price, which was actually a Next Generation episode that helps us to understand um, a bit of what's coming up next week. And I need to read that. So
1: are, are we going to get some uh, comment from uh, resident expert Mackay on, uh, you know, how, how Ferengi should be considered?
0: Well, I could, I could, uh, I could check that out. Uh, I might, maybe it would be worth giving him a, a, a call for a, at least a soundbite. Um, hmm. um, what, do, what do we call that? A, a, a xenocultural um, understanding um, <laughs> uh, of the Ferengi mindset because uh, certainly understanding the Ferengi mindset will be a, a, a significant part of understanding what's going on next week.
2: I can hardly wait. More Ferengi.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, thanks for joining us again. I've been uh, Will Nicholas and this has been Voyjourn. I'm Lindsay Cullen. And I'm Elizabeth Rain, and I've been on Voyager.
2: A theological (laughs) Journey. journey.